Chapter Fifteen of the White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather by P. G. Wodehouse. Chapter Fifteen: The Route at Ripton. On the Saturday following this episode, the first fifteen travelled to Ripton to play the return match with that school on its own ground. Of the two Ripton matches, the one played at Riken was always the big event of the football year, but the other came next in importance, and the telegram which was dispatched to the school shop at the close of the game was always awaited with anxiety. This year Riken looked forward to the return match with a certain amount of apathy, due partly to the fact that the school was in a slack, unpatriotic state, and partly to the hammering the team had received in the previous term, when the Ripton centre three-quarters had run through and scored with monotonous regularity. "'We're bound to get sat on,' was the general verdict of the school. Allardyce, while thoroughly agreeing with this opinion, did his best to conceal the fact from the rest of the team. He had certainly done his duty by them. Every day for the past fortnight the forwards and outsides had turned out to run and pass, and on the Saturdays there had been matches with Corpus, Oxford, and the Cambridge Old Rykinians. In both games the school had been beaten. In fact, it seemed as if they could only perform really well when they had no opponents. To see the three-quarters racing down the field, at practice, and scoring innumerable, imaginary, tries, one was apt to be misled into consider them a fine quartet. But when there was a match, all the beautiful dash and precision of the passing faded away, and the last thing they did was to run straight. Barry was the only one of the four who played the game properly. But, as regarded condition, there was nothing wrong with the team. Even Trevor could not have made them train harder, and Allardyce in his more sanguine moments had a shadowy hope that the Ripton score might, with care, be kept in the teens. Barry had bought a sportsman at the station, and he unfolded it as the train began to move. Searching the left-hand column of the middle page, as we all do when we buy the sportsman on Saturday, to see how our names look in print, and what sort of a team the enemy has got, he made a remarkable discovery. At the same moment Drummond, on the other side of the carriage, did the same. "'I say,' he said, "'they must have had a big clear-out at Ripton. Have you seen the team they've got out to-day?' "'I was just looking at it.' said Barry. "'What's up with it?' inquired Allardyce. "'Let's have a look.' "'They've only got about half their proper team. They've got a different back. Gray isn't playing.' "'Both their centres are, though,' said Drummond. "'More fun for us, Drum, old chap,' said Addle. "'I'm going home again. Stop the train.' Drummond said nothing. He hated Attle most when he tried to be facetious. "'Dunn isn't playing, nor is Waite,' said Barry. "'So they haven't got either of their proper halves. I say, we might have a chance of doing something to-day.' "'Of course we shall,' said Allardyce. "'You've only got to buck up, and we've got them on toast.' The atmosphere in the carriage became charged with optimism. It seemed a simple thing to defeat a side which was practically a Ripton A-team. The centre three-quarters were there still, it was true— but Allardyce and Drummond ought to be able to prevent the halves ever getting the ball out to them. The team looked on those two unknown halves as timid novices 
who would lose their heads at the kick-off. As a matter of fact, the system of football teaching at Ripton was so perfect, and the keenness so great, that the second fifteen was nearly as good as the first every year. But the Riken team did not know this, with the exception of Allardyce, who kept his knowledge to himself, and they arrived at Ripton jaunty and confident. Keith, the Ripton captain, who was one of the centre three-quarters, who had made so many holes in the Riken defence in the previous term, met the team at the station, and walked up to the school with them, carrying Allardyce's bag. "'You seem to have lost a good many men at Christmas,' said Allardyce. "'We were reading the sportsmen in the train. Apparently you've only got ten of your last term's lot. Have they all left?' The Ripton captain grinned ruefully. "'Not much,' he replied. "'They're all here, all except Dunn. You remember Dunn? Little thick-set chap who played half. He always had his hair quite tidy and parted exactly in the middle all through the game.' "'Oh, yes, I remember Dunn. What's he doing now?' "'Gone to Cooper's Hill. Rot! He's not going to the varsity. He'd have walked into his blue.' Allardyce agreed. He had marked Dunn in the match of the previous term, and that immaculate sportsman had made things not a little warm for him. "'Where are all the others, then?' he asked. "'Where's that other half of yours? And the rest of the forwards?' "'Mumps,' said Keith. What? It's a fact. Rot, isn't it? We've had a regular bout of it. Twenty fellows got it all together. Naturally, four of those were in the team. That's the way things happen. I only wonder the whole scrum didn't have it. What beastly luck, said Allardyce. We had measles like that a couple of years ago in the summer term, and had to play the Incogs and Zingari with a sort of second eleven, we got mopped. "'That's what we shall get this afternoon, I'm afraid,' said Keith. "'Oh, no,' said Allardyce. "'Of course you won't.' And, as events turned out, that was one of the truest remarks he had ever made in his life. One of the drawbacks to playing Ripton on its own ground was the crowd. Another was the fact that one generally got beaten— but your sportsman can put up with defeat. What he does not like is a crowd that regards him as a subtle blend of incompetent idiot and malicious scoundrel, and says so very loud and clear. It was not, of course, the school that did this. They spent their time blushing for the shouters. It was the patriotic inhabitants of Ripton Town who made the school wish that they could be saved from their friends. The football ground at Ripton was at the edge of the school fields, separated from the road by narrow iron railings, and along these railings the choicest spirits of the town would line up, and smoke, and yell, and spit, and yell again. As Wordsworth wrote, there are two voices. They were on something like the following lines. Inside the railings, School! Buck up, School! Get it out, School! Outside the railings, "'Gow it, Ripton! That's the way, Ripton! Twist his good old English adjective neck, Ripton! Sit on his forcibly described head, Ripton! Gow it, Ripton! Ho, 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 ho! They ain't no use, Ripton! Kick him in the eye, Ripton! Ho, ho, ho!' The bursts of merriment signalized the violent downfall of some dangerous opponent. 
The school loathed these humble supporters, and occasionally fastidious juniors would go the length of throwing chunks of mud at them through the railings, but nothing discouraged them or abated their fervid desire to see the school win. Every year they seemed to increase in zeal, and they were always in great form at the Riken match. It would be charitable to ascribe to this reason the gruesome happenings of that afternoon. They needed some explaining away. Allardyce won the toss, and chose to start downhill, with the wind in his favour. It is always best to get these advantages at the beginning of the game. If one starts against the wind, it usually changes ends at half-time. Amidst a roar from both touch-lines and a volley of howls from the road, a Ripton forward kicked off. The ball flew in the direction of Stanning, on the right wing. A storm of laughter arose from the road as he dropped it. The first scrum was formed on the Riken 25 line. The Ripton forwards got the ball and heeled with their usual neatness. The Ripton half, who was taking the scrum, gathered it cleanly and passed to his colleague. He was a sturdy youth with a dark, rather forbidding face, in which the acute observer might have read signs of the savage. He was of the breed which is vaguely described at public schools as nigger, a term covering every variety of shade from ebony to light lemon. As a matter of fact, he was a half-caste, sent home to England to be educated. Drummond recognized him as he dived forward to tackle him. The last place where they had met had been the roped ring at Aldershot. It was his opponent in the final of the feathers. He reached him as he swerved, and they fell together. The ball bounded forward. "'Hello, Patero,' he said. "'Thought you'd left.' The other grinned recognition. "'Hello, Drummond. Going up to Aldershot this year?' "'Yes, lightweight.' "'So am I.' The scrum had formed by now, and further conversation was impossible. Drummond looked a little thoughtful as they put the ball in. He had been told that Patero was leaving Ripton at Christmas. It was a nuisance his being still at school. Drummond was not afraid of him. He would have fought a champion of the world if the school had expected him to, but he could not help remembering that it was only by the very narrowest margin, and after a terrific three rounds, that he had beaten him in the feathers the year before. It would be too awful for words if the decision were to be reversed in the coming competition. But he was not allowed much leisure for pondering on the future. The present was too full of incident and excitement, the withdrawal of the four invalids and the departure of Dunn had not reduced the Ripton team to that wreck of its former self which the Riken fifteen had looked for. On the contrary, their play seemed, if anything, a shade better than it had been in the former match. There was all the old aggressiveness, and Patero and his partner, so far from being timid novices and losing their heads, eclipsed the exhibition given at Riken by Waite and Dunn. Play had only been in progress six minutes when Keith, taking a pass on the twenty-five line, slipped past Adel, round round the back, and scored between the posts. Three minutes later the other Ripton centre scored. At the end of twenty minutes the Riken line had been crossed five times, and each of the tries had been converted. "'Can't you fellows get that ball in the scrum?' demanded Allardyce plaintively as the team began for the fifth time the old familiar walk to the halfway line. "'Pack tight, and get the first shove!' The result of this address was to increase the Ripton lead by four points. 
In his anxiety to get the ball, one of the Riken forwards started healing before it was in, and the referee promptly gave a free kick to Ripton for foot up. As this event took place within easy reach of the Riken goal, and immediately in front of the same, Keith had no difficulty in bringing off the penalty. By half-time the crowd in the road, hoarse with laughter, had exhausted all their adjectives and were repeating themselves. The Ripton score was six goals, a penalty goal, and two tries to nil, and the Riken team was a demoralized rabble. The fact that the rate of scoring slackened somewhat after the interval may be attributed to the disinclination of the Riptonians to exert themselves unduly. They ceased playing in the stern and scientific spirit in which they had started, and, instead of adhering to an orthodox game, began to enjoy themselves. The forwards no longer healed like a machine. They broke through ambitiously and tried to score on their own account. When the outsides got as far as the back, they did not pass. They tried to drop goals. In this way, only twenty-two points were scored after half-time. Allardyce and Drummond battled on nobly, but with their pack hopelessly outclassed, it was impossible for them to do anything of material use. Barry, on the wing, tackled his man whenever the latter got the ball, but as a rule the centres did not pass, but attacked by themselves. At last, by way of a fitting conclusion to the rout, the Ripton back, catching a high punt, ran instead of kicking, and to the huge delight of the town contingent, scored. With this incident the visiting team drained the last dregs of the bitter cup. Humiliation could go no further. Almost immediately afterwards the referee blew his whistle for no side. Three cheers for Riken, said Keith, to the fifteen victims. It sounded ironical. End of chapter 15